Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 160, recorded March 22nd, 2014. So today we are doing only two issues, but they are long ones. Yes, they're, they're double-size issues because they're unlimited! So when Marvel Comics took on the Star Trek franchises, for whatever reason, they decided not to give original series and Next Generation a monthly uh, story, a monthly comic. So instead they came out with a bi-monthly, a double-length comic series that would have a story from both both franchises in one book. Which is kind of interesting and weird. Yeah, I would rather them just come out with uh, every month yeah. and just have one or the other, you know, alternate. Right. Yeah, you know, some people are more into generation, next generation, some people are more into Taz, you know. Let them buy what they want. But. Yeah, but this way they force you to pay more. <laughs> <laughs> so even Well, if, you, you mean it's a profit thing? Even if you don't want to see the guy in the yellow shirts, because you know, you're just going to skip over that story anyways. Right. Uh, and you still had to buy it. Exactly. And despite whether you actually really want to read anything about a bald captain or not, well, <laughs> you're going to get the book anyway. You'll pay for it. Right. Um, I do think that there's one story later on uh, in this series that's actually um, – well, I know there's one story where they kind of combine the two. So yeah. there's a Trelane-Q crossover, which right. then crosses over Kirk and Picard. Right. And then I think there's one issue where it's just the next generation, and it's based after um, First Contact. So it might be even after um, Insurrection. I don't know. but Yeah. So they mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Doing some crossover. One taken over once in a while, so, eh, whatever. It only lasted seven issues, so it's not like it lasted all that long. Yeah. And this is the first one. So, okay, so I get to do the uh, first issue. Published date is November 1996. Cover features uh, Kirk, Spock, Uhura, and McCoy all looking upward to the reader. Kirk and Spock have their phasers more or less pointed at the reader. The Enterprise is in the top half, appearing to fly out of an expanding circular ripple of fiery energy that is being fed off a white-hot explosion. Text tells us we have two full-length stories, one from Taz and another from TNG. It is an exciting cover that promises an action-packed thrill ride inside. Will it deliver? Story one is titled Directives. Creative team is Dan Abnett, and Ian Edginton. Penciler is Ron Randall, Carlos Garzon, and Jerome Moore. Inkers, Al Williamson and Derek Fisher. Colors, Team Boosie. Letterer, Phil Felix. Assistant Editor, Polly Watson. Editor, Bobby Chase. Editor-in-Chief, Bob Harras. Captain's Log. The Enterprise D is entering orbit around Adrella which is on the outskirts of Federation space. The Adrell people have reached the point of becoming an interstellar culture. 
Their mission is to make first contact and hopefully establish an ongoing relationship. However, the Enterprise arrives and finds Adrella in the grip of a global natural disaster. Or so we first thought. On the bridge, Data is reporting to Picard that continuing displacement of the planet's tectonic plates is causing mantle ruptures in multiple places. He estimates Adrella's environment will be partially collapsed in 36 hours. He goes on to say that scans indicate anomalous readings from the primary sites of disturbance. This is being artificially induced. Picard asks, by whom? Who has that kind of technology? Data says he does not know, but that Commander Riker's away team is coming upon one of the primary sites of the disturbance. They may be able to learn more. On the planet, Riker, Worf, Geordi, and two more crewmen make their way through the apocalyptic landscape to find a huge alien structure penetrating the planet's surface. Worf calls it a dagger into the heart of the planet. Riker reports to Picard and tells him there is an opening to the structure. They are going to check it out. Picard says to proceed with caution, and they will maintain a transporter lock on them. The away team enters and finds the interior very hot. Geordi determines it is some form of seismic resonator that is too advanced to be a drill tech. Riker runs into one of the humanoid engineers of the structure, who was quite surprised to see him. He says they are not part of the plan. He cannot be allowed to interfere. When he grabs Riker, Worf shoots him and causes him to fall backwards into a girder. With a bad head wound, Riker decides to bring the unknown alien back to the ship for treatment. Dr. Crusher is able to stop the internal bleeding and says he should be able to recover in time. She tells Picard and Riker they have no information on this particular alien. Though she can't tell them exactly what race he is from, she can tell them that he is not a native of Adrella. Riker is not surprised. Picard is called to the bridge, and on the way there, he and Riker discuss the situation. On the eve of Adrella becoming an interstellar race, this unknown race shows up to sabotage their ecosystem. It's very unlikely that this timing is random. The Prime Directive prevents them from interfering with the normal progress of a society. This other race appears to have no such restrictions. They arrive on the bridge, where Data reports another ship has dropped out of warp and entered orbit near them. It is a very large ship of an unfamiliar design, but its structure is similar to the seismic resonator structures on the planet. Picard orders shields at the ready, but don't raise them yet. They are hailed by Obal, the chief decisionary of the Lom cruiser named Malalad. Picard introduces himself and the Enterprise. Obal asks Picard to state his business on Andrella. Picard tells them, as representatives of the United Federation of Planets, they seek to establish peaceful contact with the people of Andrella. Obal states how fortuitous that their two superior races should meet this way. He accepts Picard's invitation to discuss the matter further aboard the Enterprise. After the channel is closed, Troy comments they may be getting two first contacts for the price of one. Picard says he wants Troy in on the conversation with Obal. 
Though things seem chummy now, the conversation could turn awkward if those seismic resonators are confirmed to be the LAMs. Data informs Picard there have been reports of a significant civilization in this region of space, but no contact has been reported. The LAM ship is very advanced and well-armed. If it comes down to a fight, the Enterprise would likely lose. Picard says he hopes it won't come down to that. Picard orders Riker to the surface to meet with Geordi's team to find out all he can about the LAM equipment causing the planetary destabilization. In the conference room, Picard and Deanna sit down with decisionary Obal and two more LAM. They give Picard several works of art and are open to Deanna's offering to replicate several more works of Federation art in return. Picard states this is a momentous occasion, but they must discuss the serious matter. Picard explains about how the LAM engineer was accidentally injured and had to be taken to the ship for treatment. Obal is all good with it and says they will provide the medical information needed if the technician if technician Valad cannot be moved for now. Picard moves on to the next serious topic. He asks about the installations and postulates they must be malfunctioning. They are wreaking havoc on the planet, which of course can't be their intent. Obal matter-of-factly states, well, of course it's their intent. The scene shifts to the surface where Riker is speaking to Geordi in the LAM structure. Geordi explains the device is meant to crack Adrella open like a rotten fruit. The global ash that results will be like a nuclear winter-style climate change. But he thinks he found a way to put a spanner in its works. Just then, an armed landing party of four LAM transport down and tell them to explain their presence. Geordi moves to do something to some equipment. The LAM order the away team off the installation or suffer the consequences. They transport back to the Enterprise. Later, Picard assembles his senior staff. Data explains we have a fundamental clash of ideologies with the LAM. Picard asks Data to explain. Data tells them the LAM employ the science of psychohistory, which attempts to predict the future. They employ this statistically derived knowledge to help other races whether they want the help or not. For example, they would exterminate a third of a world's population if they thought it would avoid a deadly genetic flaw from surfacing a thousand years hence. They would forcibly relocate an entire population if they predicted their son would wipe out the population 50,000 years in the future. To them, this is their equivalent of the Federation's prime directive. It's what they believe in. Geordi pipes in, saying, too bad it's the opposite of what the Federation believes in. Data says they are engineering the equivalent of a nuclear winter on Adrella to repair the planet's diminished ozone layer. It will take 900 years to achieve and kill millions. Riker breaks in, stating we can't let them do this. Picard says they may have no choice, given the Prime Directive. By defending Andrella, they could be interfering with LAM society. Deanna asks, where should the line be drawn? The LAM is clearly interfering with the Andrella due to their idea of destiny. Is it our destiny to let it happen? Geordi says he can disable the destabilizers with a neutrino beam. Data says that action could trigger a war. 
Picard finds out from Dr. Crusher the LOM technician will be sufficiently healed to be transported back to the LOM ship in about an hour. He says he has that long to make his decision. He asks Geordi and Data to prepare the neutrino beam. He asks Riker and Worf to prepare the ship for battle. Later, Picard contacts decisionary Obal. Obal is insulted by Picard's intentions to stop what they see as actions that will aid the Indrell. Would you deny them their destiny? Picard states that he does not want to enter into conflict with the Loam, but he cannot allow millions of defenseless Adrell be killed by this. Picard terminates their connection as Deanna enters his ready room. Deanna thought Picard might need someone to talk to at a time like this. Picard says no matter what choice he makes, many people will die. Which is the lesser of two evils that face him? Which should he choose? Deanna points out that when the preservers chose to manipulate the DNA of most of the humanoid races across the galaxy thousands of years ago, they made a choice that changed the face of the galaxy forever. If they did not make the choice to intervene, maybe none of them would be here today. She says each situation must be judged upon their own merits. She and the crew knows the captain will make the right decision. They trust his judgment. Dr. Crusher asks Picard to come to sickbay. She shows him some very interesting things about the LOM biodata they sent over to aid in Valad's treatment. The narrative shifts to Picard speaking with decisionary Obal again. He tells Obal his technician has been transported back to the Malalad. Also, that they are now going to deactivate all the LOM seismic disruptor installations on the planet. Picard tells Geordi and Data to initiate the neutrino beams. Obal is incensed. He tells Picard that he is forcing a confrontation that neither of them want. Worf informs Picard the Loam have raised shields and charged forward weapon batteries. Picard tells him to do nothing in response. Picard tells Obal that while treating Volad, she found a congenital blood defect. Left untreated, this defect will eradicate the Lom race in a thousand years. Picard transmits Dr. Crusher's findings to the Lom. He says all of her notes on treatment are included in the information just sent. He respectfully suggests the Lom get their own house in order before they pass judgments on anyone else's. While looking at the data, Obal says Picard is correct. He says he must inform the LOM coalition and terminates communication. Picard's log states it's been decided to postpone the first contact with the Andrell until they recover from the effects of the LOM. Monitoring communications, it appears the Andrell are attributing it to natural causes. The LOM have removed their installations and withdrawn to deal with the problems of their own for now. Picard says, for all their benevolent intentions, they were arrogant and only realized it when a mirror was held up to, that exposed their flaws. Picard wonders, how would the Federation react if someone held up a mirror to them? Uh, like maybe what Q does pretty much every time they see him? The end. Nice, nice little commentary at the end. Yes. Well... 
Yeah, on the one hand, it was kind of good that at the end, uh, you know, pontificating on what you should do and not sh- not do as a superior race, and then uh, and then you know, oh, we're holding up the mirror to you, you jerks. At least Picard has enough self awareness to ask the question about how would they pass a test like that. And it's like, but that's like, come on, Q does it every week. Well, well, every time he shows up, anyway. So, uh, what did you think of this story? Um, I was fine with the beginning and the middle. I just really didn't know how it was going to end. Because I think the idea of uh, a Federation ship coming into contact with another superior race who's also interacting with, uh, with lower tech civilizations is, is kind of interesting. Because that could go a lot of different ways. But then, trying to make the LAM... Uh, these people that have such a fundamentally different uh, idea on how you should handle interacting with other races. Um, I, I wasn't expecting that, um, for them to make it such a, a diametrically opposed, uh, you know, philosophies. So all that was kind of interesting, I thought. Uh, and I kind of liked the Lom ship, but more on that later. Uh, but in the end, it was like, how are you going to resolve this? I just didn't like how it was resolved. Right. So what do, you, what do you think they, Lom, went to do to themselves? You think they went to go cure themselves? Or well, what, would have they, what would have logically been their next step? Well, I think they, well, I think they probably should have ended their mission, you know, completed their mission, and then, uh, you know, at, at the planet, Andrell, and then gone back and taken this information to, you know, make sure that they can cure themselves. I mean, all the information is supposedly there to do it, but, I mean, I think they want to take a look at this and and make sure that everything Crusher is saying is correct. But if you follow their philosophy that, you know, the reason why they they do this horrible stuff to other planets is because eventually it's going to happen anyways. Well, they're they're helping them in the long run, right? Right. By fixing something... All right, so they wouldn't go and kill themselves or anything like that because eventually kill they're themselves. Die anyways. Yeah, I was thinking what? that. No, 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 you're right. For whatever reason, I was thinking that the if if they really did have a you know a unstoppable or or a disease mm-hmm. that that they all had. Right. Uh, that you know if if they really were going to say you know. You know, the ozone on this planet is going to kill them at some point, so we have to, you know, fix it now. I mean, right. if, if you as a race or a good number of your race has a particular disease, instead of letting it, you know, keep furthering and, and infecting more people, you would just kill everybody who has it, and then whoever doesn't have it could continue the race. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I was thinking that that would have been their way of fixing it, because I didn't really oh. buy that every single one of their race would have this, this genetic disease. defect. Right. Yeah, I, I find that very unusual also. Unlikely. There's such variety in at least human genome that um, it'd be interesting that a characteristic would be with every uh, member of a race, but who knows? Not a geneticist. Don't know. Right. So anyways, that that's what I was thinking. Uh, and it, obviously it has... I don't think I'm quite on the right page as far as what their next steps were, but I was thinking that, well, if you were going to kill millions of people on this planet to stop something that 
hasn't even happened yet, then then using that logic, they would probably do the same thing to themselves to stop this disease from continuing to, you know, the mm. next generation. Right. But it sounded like Crusher had a pat cure. Right. So, uh, so I, I, I think it's a little... I think it's a little too pat and unrealistic to think... Because I think what they're trying to say is, hey, you're spending so much time messing another planet's business that you're not even noticing your own medical issues. Um, so, ooh, don't you want to think about that one? Like, uh, oh, well, maybe we aren't looking at enough at ourselves, and that's going to change how we do everything. But gosh, you're right, Picard. You know, yeah. I'm not buying it. Right. But... Yeah, whatever. It just it's just a little too pat. Uh, I agree. I, I I didn't really care for the ending. Yeah, but other than that, I was I was pretty down with it up until then. Yeah, yeah I liked the uh, you know the the different philosophy. Even though I do think they were a little too extreme. Yeah, you know that that. I mean, it's almost like what you know you could make the case for for like a Doctor Who type character if you know that you know. This is going to happen at some point, and you can kind of fix it by making something by you know starting it earlier. Um, would you, you know, kind of thing, and th- and that's kind of what these this race this race's prime directive is. So right. How they know that this was going to happen in a million years without, you know, well, the benefit of time travel, uh, I don't, I don't buy. Right, it, right, and that's where the problem is. <clears throat> so, um. So they borrowed an idea from Isaac Asimov. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he was the first guy that had this whole idea of psychohistory, where if you're able to gather enough information about a civilization and about a people and about a, a planet or maybe a, a string of planets, maybe an empire, that you can predict the future by applying statistical method and a whole bunch of uh, you know statistical things that we couldn't describe you know, it, now, but in theory, if your if your statistics were good enough and your information was good enough, you could predict the future with a high rate of confidence. Hmm. And that's the thing; it's a high rate of confidence. It isn't flawless. Um, things can diverge over, especially if the period of time is is so much uh, so much more in the future, because things could come into the picture that make that may change things that you don't know anything about now. So exactly, so using psychohistory to be able to project the future, but that is, but they're not actually seeing the future. They're seeing a highly probable future based on their science. Okay. But the thing is, you could be wrong. I mean, there's a margin for error. And quite frankly, uh, so I, Asimov came up with this in the Foundation series of books. So that was the underpinnings of like the six or five or whatever number of books made up the foundation series. Um, so these guys are arrogant, like Picard says, because they're, they have such confidence in their uh, psychohistory that they're making decisions and taking lives in the millions based on their confidence in their tech, right. uh, their ability to, 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 to see the future. So I, I that, I think, I think that's the core rub uh, where these guys are really nuts. Right. Yeah, and I would have 
I didn't know all that about uh, Isaac Asimov um, coming up with the same, coming up with this philosophy. Right. But uh, I mean, I didn't buy that you would kill everybody instead of you know putting in some sort of measure to reverse it or to you know educate them to not deplete the ozone or whatever. Right. Right. And would that if they did say, hey, do it this way instead of that way, would that was that in their calculations? I, I, you, you know, the funny thing. Oh, I don't. I hate to spoil things, but in the Foundation series, uh, s- psychohistory turns out to be BS. So, <laughs> even more so, uh, you know, this whole thing is uh, is is not is not why you would want to make decisions to kill millions of people, right? Okay. Anyway, um, I like the uh, I like I, I like the uh, Lom ship. Even though I have a hard time pronouncing its name, I think this design is weird and wacky and different, and I like it. It's I, very I, it's I, very unconventional. It is. Yeah, it's almost organic, almost uh, kind of like a I don't know some sort of manta ray with its wings like at a tip. Oh yeah, like kind of like thing. like down, like like yeah. if it if it came down, like you say to a tip and kind of, almost like like an elongated heart shape kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was you know had all these little bulbous things coming out of it that right. you know looked cool, but looked like maybe they have a purpose. You know, you, you just don't know what it is yet. Right. right. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was interesting, and, and I don't know what the deal is with like a fish 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 eyed type lens, but. That first time you see it, the Enterprise is kind of warped, like it's at the forefront of a fish-type lens, and it makes everything oh. look a little distorted. Like a fisheye lens. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Did, did you think that, too? or? Um, I mean, definitely the cover has that going on, but did you think that this had that, too? And they're I, not page-numbered, so I I, I I didn't notice that, quite frankly, but if I, I'll go back and, and find the page. Yeah, and it's, it is a pain. <laughs> we can't go directly to the um, to the page numbers. Yeah, that is a pain. Uh, I, I didn't notice that, but if I looked at it again, oh, I see. So now I'm on I'm on the page. It's a full page uh, panel, and it's a cool full page panel. And yeah, the Enterprise definitely looks like it's got some of that wide ankle distortion going. Right. And that is a cool shot. It is a cool shot. Yeah. It has like the sun, maybe even like two suns in the background. Right. It's yeah. it's a really nice painting. Yeah. And then the swirling clouds on uh, on the disturbed planet below. Very right. nice. Okay, just because there's a lot more to cover, uh, I just want to finish up by saying I was interested in in Deanna's mentioning of um, what the preservers. Right. Is it? Did she call him by name? Well, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, and then that reminded me back to the TNG episode, which turns out to be the Chase. I didn't remember what what the name was, but it was called the Chase. Uh, and I looked up Memory Alpha. That remind that reminded me about the Preservers. Um. Right. So, uh, okay. So Memory Alpha talks about the preserv the Preservers. In relation to the Taws episode, the Paradise Syndrome. Okay, so so going back to this, 
I thought she, I thought Deanna was referring to the the alien race they saw in the T, TNG episode, The Chase. That's what that's who I thought she was talking about. But apparently, she was really referring to the preservers that were in the Toss ep, Toss episode, The Paradise Syndrome. Uh, you know what the Indian yeah. American Indian yeah, one, the American Indian one, right? And right. Then, were, are they not the same? Well, okay. So this is what Ron D. Moore says about it. And this is all at on Memory Alpha. Okay. Uh, uh, okay, so Ronald D. Moore, who I guess wrote uh, The Chase, right? Uh, he says the ancient aliens in The Chase could have been the preservers from the Taz world, but he did not intend that they were when he wrote the script. Right. So, so he's fine with it being the same, but that's not what he had in mind when he wrote uh, The Chase. Right. And and in her comment here, if she's correct, would would then link the two. So yeah. in this continuity, the preservers and the uh, the chase aliens are the same. Right. That's which makes sense like. to me because I mean the preservers were they they were but they had the American Indians because they were trying to preserve that society, right? And then yeah, and then also they also even before that spread, you know, humanoid DNA, DNA all over the, the galaxy to create, to justify why all aliens on Star Trek are <laughs> pretty much like humans with bumpy heads. Exactly, right. <laughs> it has nothing to do with, uh, with the cost of making them have five arms or anything. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's the preservers. Yes, exactly. That, that, that's what justifies it. Yeah. All right. That's the last thing I have to say about this one. All right, um... I could, last... more, but... Do what? I could talk more, but I'm not going to. Okay. Um, my last thing, and, and it happens all the time, y- you have horrible things happening. I don't understand why you have to send all your senior staff down to the planet <laughs> to investigate <laughs> volcanoes and hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, uh, I mean, this just really drove home how, how kind of ridiculous that is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because they're because they're drawing what's going on there, and it's I mean Riker's hair is even messed up. You know, that doesn't happen very often, right? But and then you can see like in the skyline, they're not too far from an active volcano, and yeah. there's also the hurricane, and there's also all this horrible stuff. Data's yep. confirming it all from orbit. Yeah, I don't see why they had to be on the planet except that they had to eventually go into the machine. Exactly. But why exactly. you can't send yeah, and, and red I, shirts down there, I don't know. Exactly, or a few ensigns or something. Uh, but why even do that? I mean, did, did they explain why the ship's sensors couldn't pick up, um, you know, machines down there? I mean, what do you um, think the ship's sensors... Ships Star Trek sensors are amazingly magical things, and they seem to be able to do everything else. So, you know, wh- why did you need people's eyes to see that there's metal structures... Uh, digging into the ground. I don't know. Right. Yep. No, I mean they knew they knew that that's where something that was causing yes. the, the yeah. things. Were, they, 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 they didn't know that much. They didn't know exactly what it was. Exactly. And why didn't they? I mean, right. Agreed. Ship sensors are amazing things. Yeah. Uh, and I had just seen the the movie um, when I was reading this. I just seen the movie uh, Pompeii. Okay. So it's like, you know. I, 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 if people are going to see that movie, I'm sure they've seen it by now. Uh, but everybody died, so nobody lived. So it's like, 
I was thinking, I had that mindset as I'm seeing Riker and Worf and, and Jordy, the, the, the engineer, I mean, the chief engineer, all on the planet. So I was thinking, oh, man, this is crazy. <laughs> right. I agree with you. All right. Anything else on this? Because I nope. have a, something to talk about the cover, but since it's Taz, oh. I was going to save it for last. Okay. <laughs> okay. All uh, right. Can I talk about the cover real quick then? Yes, do. Go. So what did you think of the cover? Didn't it remind you of an old like TV guide from the 60s? Yeah. Oh. Um, now that you mention it, yes. Yeah, I just tried to find that TV guide image. It, if I remember correctly, it was Spock and Kirk kind of looking up, uh, again, like a fish-eyed type lens. Effect. Right. And uh, this almost, this reminds me a lot of it, even though I can't find it right now. Right. Do, do you know the cover I'm talking about? Not exactly, but you mentioning it, um, yeah, I, I definitely can envision that that uh, TV Guide cover. Maybe it's not TV Guide, but... Uh... Well, when I was a kid, I used to actually collect some TV Guides that had covers with this kind of stuff going. Really? Yeah, yeah, like Star Trek covers or uh, Wild Wild West covers or, you know, things like that. You still have them? I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I might have one or two, maybe. I'd have to, I'd have to look. Hmm. But uh, also on the cover, um, which I found interesting, was that the Enterprise is the Cage-era Enterprise with the little oh, yeah. pointy things coming out of the nipples. With the nipples. Now, are you sure that's not just a reflection? I, I, I agree with you, but I'm just, I'm just saying. Are you mm-hmm. sure that's not just a reflection of some kind? Because uh, you, you don't see it full on. Uh, the saucer section obscures part of both of the front, t- front tips of the nacelles. Although there does appear to be something in the same spot in the front. Right. I do agree. So, anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, I, I kind of like the cover. Although, I gotta say, the artwork is a little... Especially people's lips, Kirk's lips in particular... And, and Spock's lips, it just, it just doesn't look very well done. Yeah, it's a little, inter- it's a little different. Yeah, the, the art isn't as good as, it, as I would expect it to be. But, but it, it looks cool. I like the cover. Right. Okay. Second story is titled, Dying of the Light. Writer is Dan Abnett and Ian Edgington. Penciler, Mark Buckingham. Inker... Kev F. Sutherland, colors by Kevin Cozy Summers, letters by Phil Felix, editor Bobby Chase, editor-in-chief Bob Haras. Captain's Log. During routine mapping of the Lotar subgroup, they receive a distress call from a Federation ship. Following that signal brought the Enterprise to planet Lotar 3, where they came under attack by three Gorn attack ships that look a bit like purple stave puff marshmallow ships. The shields are down to 84%. Spock says the Enterprise outguns the smaller Gorn cruisers, but the ferocity of their attack and their numbers are taking its toll. A prolonged engagement is not recommended. The Gorn hail them. Kirk takes the call. The Gorn introduces himself as Salath of the Gorn Hegemony. 
He says he is the same Gorn that fought Kirk hand-to-hand. Salath says the last time they met, the human transgression may have been the result of a mistake, but not this time. Their presence here proves the Federation is not to be trusted. You have defiled our faith. Kirk objects and says the Enterprise is on a mercy mission. Salath says if Kirk is seeking mercy, he should surrender his ship and submit to trial by Gorn law. Otherwise, Salath promises a swift death. Two hours earlier. The Enterprise enters orbit around Lotar 3 that Spock confirms is the source of the distress signal. They find a number of spherical objects in orbit. Oddly enough, they are 1,000 meters in circumference and composed of solid rock. They have carved decorations on their surface and have been held in their current orbit for nearly a half a million years by their unique magnetic properties. Ohura traces the distress beacon to its exact location on the surface. Kirk calls for a landing party to investigate. Spock stays behind to further study the markings on the spheres. On the surface, the landing party finds more carvings on Aztec-like ruins. They record and transmit images of them to Mr. Spock for further analysis. Kirk's party comes upon Professor Holm Bynan from the University of Colorado's Field Archaeology Program. The runes and carvings brought him to the planet, but his clothes are tattered and face covered in a thick, thick beard. He says his ship malfunctioned and stranded him here. He is concerned about getting his most significant finds back to the Enterprise unharmed. Kirk assures him once he is on board, they will send a shuttle back for his finds. As the professor goes to gather his things, McCoy tells Kirk he wants to do a full physical on the professor. He is too healthy for someone left stranded in such a tropical environment for an extended period. No evidence of malnutrition, no tropical contagions. Later, back on the Enterprise, Kirk asks Uhura to inform Starfleet of the finds. They may want to send a research vessel. Spock says they may not. He has partially deciphered the markings on the spheres. They are a warning that this is a Gorn cemetery world and that trespass is considered the gravest form of sacrilege. Kirk is not happy. McCoy enters the bridge and tells Kirk the professor is in such good health because he has been pumped up with the latest in antiviral agents. It's as if he was expecting to be stranded there for an extended period. The professor has not been completely honest with them. Scotty calls the bridge and asks the captain to come down to the shuttle bay where they are unloading the artifacts from the surface. The professor is under everyone's feet with his fussing. Kirk and Spock arrive. Kirk tells Scotty to return the artifacts to the surface. Mr. Spock explains that his credentials show him to be an extraterrestrial astroanthropologist with a specialty in the Gorn race. He knew what this planet was. What he has done here amounts to grave robbery, and he knows it. The professor looks guilty, but defends his actions by stating the artifacts he has found proves the theory that the Gorn descended from the equivalent of terrestrial dinosaur ancestors. If the dinosaurs had not died out on Earth, creatures like the Gorn 
could be the current dominant species on Earth, too. The continuing dominance by dinosaur-like creatures prevented the rise of mammals on their world, unlike ours. The problem was to get off the planet with the artifacts and biological samples and escape likely Gorn pursuit. Kirk cut in, saying the professor's solution was to bait the Enterprise in with a fake distress call, and then you'd just let us fight your way past the Gorn attack? Suddenly the ship rocks. The Gorn are attacking. Kirk thanks Professor Bynan for perhaps single-handedly starting a war and has him thrown in the brig. Kirk and Spock rush to the bridge. Kirk's log states his experience has shown the Gorn to be fiercely territorial and deadly. The Professor, and by extension the Enterprise, has committed the worst kind of transgression to the Gorn. The only card he can think of playing is the Gorn's strong sense of honor. After the firefight earlier in this issue, Kirk and the Gorn Captain Salath are speaking over an open channel. Salath says the artifacts in the Enterprise hold is all the proof he needs of Kirk's transgression. He says they will be sacrificed if needed to make the Federation pay for their crimes. Surrender to trial or be destroyed. Seeing no good options, Kirk surrenders. He proposes that in one standard Earth hour, Kirk and his senior officers will take the shuttle down to the surface to return the artifacts. Then they will turn themselves over. Salath finds the terms acceptable. The bridge crew is surprised by Kirk's decision to surrender. Kirk tells Spock the only immediate way out of this is to fight our way out, and he will not fight when they are in the wrong. We did transgress their laws, and we can't hide it. We have one hour to find another way out of this. Spock calls Kirk on lying about surrendering. Kirk says it was a white lie. Let's not fight over semantics. Kirk tells Spock the answer may be in the Gorns themselves, and he knows just who might have the answer, Professor Bynan. Towards the end of a short, seemingly unproductive discussion with Professor Bynan, the scientist mentions how Lotora III is the last resting place of the Gorn's greatest warriors. It's like Stovalkor or Valhalla. Kirk hears Valhalla. When Kirk hears Valhalla, he leaves the room and tells Spock it is time to keep their appointment. The Gorn captain ponders what what Kirk is up to. He travels down to the planet with the stolen grave goods, as he promised. But this is all too easy. Kirk proved quite resourceful in their combat arranged by the Metrons. Can Kirk truly give up this easily? On Lotora III, Kirk's landing party completes replacing the artifacts where they were found. Kirk tells his people to take up positions as three Gorns beam down. Captain Salath tells Kirk to surrender. Kirk says they have returned the artifacts as a gesture of good faith, but they will not surrender. There must be another way to resolve this dispute. Salath disagrees and calls up to a ship to attack the Enterprise. Before he can complete the command, Kirk shoots his communicator out of Salath's hand without touching the Gorn's skin. What a shot! He's like the Cisco Kid on a very good day. The Gorn move to disarm the landing party and mostly succeed. Kirk explains they almost killed each other before over a misunderstanding. They made a mistake on Latora 3. They did not understand what it was. 
Now that they do, Kirk asks the Gorns for forgiveness. Salath says, how can he do that given their violation of the Gorn honored dead? Kirk tells the story of how the ancient earth warrior race called Norsemen would float their honored dead out on burning ships that transport them to the afterlife. Kirk turns and fires his phaser on full power at a shuttlecraft while telling the story, signifying a symbolic burning of the shuttle that brought the Gorn ancestors back to their resting ground. The Gorn somehow buy this senseless waste of Federation property and says he wants to hear more of these Norsemen. Kirk smiles like an idiot and shakes Shalath's hand. A potential war has been avoided by the silver-tongued devil, Kirk, and his trusty phaser. Later back on the Enterprise, the terrific trio do a post-episode wrap-up. Kirk got two broken fingers and a fractured wrist out of that handshake with the Gorn, Captain, but it was all worth it. Spock wonders how the Captain knew analogy would appeal to the Gorn. Kirk says he did not, but crossed his fingers that it would. Kirk orders Sulu to take them home. Warp Factor 3. The end. Wow. Crossing, a lot of crossing fingers in this one. You ain't kidding. And sometimes broken fingers at that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I take it you didn't like the ending? Oh, the ending was horrible. I could kind of tell from your uh, synopsis that you <laughs> might have had an opinion on that one. Uh, yes, you are indeed correct, sir. <laughs> I mean, oh, come on. Yeah, first off, is a phaser really powerful enough to melt an entire shuttlecraft? No, that is ridiculous. Yes. At first I thought, I thought the phasers were shooting down from the Enterprise, but it's like, well, no, that can't be it. I mean, if they, if they fired phasers from the Enterprise, the Gorn ship would, ships would probably attack. But no, it's, it, it was his phaser. Right. No, it was it was 100%. Hand phaser. Hand phaser. I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, blasting a hole in a, in, a, in a shuttle is one thing, but melting it to slag? I don't think so. And that, that, that would appease the, uh, the Gorn so easily. Exactly. Yeah. It, it was a misstep, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, well I, Yeah. Again, I like the beginning. I like the middle. Don't like the end. I mean, like, like, like the first, uh, the TNG story. Right. Yeah, I loved that the Gorn were back, and that it was even the same Gorn that he faced in the arena. That was yeah. actually I thought really that was cool. interesting. But then, it just didn't have a very good ending. Right. But, yeah. So, I don't know where they came up with the design for those Gorn ship, but, you know, they almost look like a bunch of grapes. Yeah, they look like yeah, to like, me. They look like some sort of like Navi gourd or melon or something. Right, right. So it wasn't very. Uh, I I didn't think that was a very good design. I they didn't take that from the original series. I mean, I don't I don't remember ever seeing the the Gorn ship. Not that I remember. Uh, in the episode arena, but um, I'm sure it didn't look like the fruit of the loom guy. Uh. <laughs> fruit of the loom. You mean the the, the grape? Yeah, you know, the, the, the grape guy, you know, the guy in the grape suit, yeah. Yeah, no, not a big fan of the cover. I mean, not a big fan of the... Um, ship design. 
the ship design. And but, another thing, uh, last but, design point is the the uh, the Gorn pistols kind of look like Cardassian pistols. They just look like a big tooth. I thought a big tooth. Well, isn't isn't that what's on his wrist? Yeah, yeah, his waist. It's just like a, a just a long sphere. There's no handle or anything. Oh wait, there is. Okay, yeah, I'm, that's weird. I, I'm mainly talking about what I saw them them firing with. You know, during the scuffle at the bottom. So I, I'm not talking about what I saw. Um, what I mean, what might have been on his belt. It's what right. he had facing. Uh, it's, there, there's one particular shot. Uh, okay, right so, after the so, right after the communicator gets shot off his hand. Well, yeah, it, born with the the gun. Actually, a little later when Spock is uh, is knocked is taken. So when Spock's phaser is knocked out of his hand. Yeah. And then the Gorn grabs Spock by the face. Right. Uh, it's the next one beneath that, where you okay. see Kirk's head, and he's, like, turned. And then everybody's purple in the background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a phaser. Well, there's a Gorn weapon of some kind, directed energy weapon. And I'll be darned if that doesn't look like a Cardassian uh, gun. But Right. Now, now, that, now that you mention it, I can see that it's, it's tapered like a Cardassian gun. Right. Now, yeah... Yeah, I, I did not notice what they had at their waist, so that's a different... I, I think it was the communicator that, that gets shot out of his hand. Oh, that. Well, that looks like a... That looks like kind of a oval, kind of pear-shaped something or other. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out him shooting it out of his hand. That was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, you remember the old... Well, I don't know if... I mean, obviously, you and I were not alive, or, or at least we were. You were not alive. I was a kid when they had the uh, Cisco Kid serial, uh, right? Uh, which I liked when I was a kid. But you know, every other episode, he'd be shooting guns out of people's hands, right? Cisco. Yeah. Well, they used to do, always do it in the Rifleman and things like that. Yeah, I and mean, that was that was a right. pretty common thing right. to happen in westerns, right? Which I remember as a kid watching it going. Didn't his hand just get shot off? And <laughs> now he's just walking around like normal? Yeah. <laughs> nope. He he hit the gun, Buckaroo. Anyway. Yeah. Not crazy about that. But I did like the way the Gorn looked. I thought I thought, you know, it didn't look like the rubber suit. And no. some of them had different lengths of snout, so it gave them a, a, each Gorn kind of a different look. Right, and I, I liked that. You know, yeah. some of them were more, more pug nosed than others, and I thought it was good. I thought it was a good design, and they looked very intimidating, especially when the camera is like low and looking up at them. Yep. Yeah, I agree. They, they did a good job on that. They didn't always do a good job, uh, though, on the humans, because <laughs> some of the uh, drawings of like the professor, uh, and then of Kirk, even um, you know, some of these drawings are terrible. Uh, of their face. I mean, honestly, terrible. Right. And then how how Kirk is smiling like an idiot at the end just before the uh, the handshake. He looks like a used car salesman. <laughs> Hi, I'd like to sell you a Buick. I, no, I, I, I'm not <laughs> digging it. Well, he did just get away with, you know, destroying a shuttlecraft and that, that somehow working. I mean, he's he's got to be pretty proud of himself right oh, now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And man, does it, doesn't that Gorn look like huge? You know when, when, you know when they're shaking hands. Doesn't that 
guy look huge next to uh, Kirk? Yeah. He looks like Godzilla. Oh, he's not that big. Well, I, I, actually, I, I'm kind of talking about his head and stuff. He kind of looks like Godzilla in that particular uh, in that particular panel, but whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, and as far as the professor goes, I thought yeah. he looked like a cartoon. I mean, I know we're reading a comic book, but the comic book, yeah. for the most part, tries to look like what a real person would look like. Right. It's like they didn't even try with the professor. Yeah. I mean, his face is way too long. His nose is – he looks like something that came out of a Disney cartoon. Yeah. And yep. not, you know, a Star Trek episode. Yeah. Which, for the most part, everybody else looks somewhat like the actors. There, There's yeah. some liberties taken here and there, but they don't right. look like cartoons. This guy did the whole time. Yeah, the whole – consistently, he looked terrible. Now – now, there are some panels where Kirk actually looked good, but that's the minority, in my opinion. Uh, far too many of them, Kirk looks terrible. Right. Anyway, whatever. Uh, let's see. That's all I have to say. Okay. You didn't think it was a little confusing when uh, they had the two hours later and the little, the little arrow pointing off to nothing? Well, Am I supposed to turn the page? Am I supposed to look over here in the corner of my room? <laughs> well, when I was first reading it, I was totally confused. Right. But then when they got to the point where it was obvious that they were, oh, they were showing you uh, what happened between the time that they got the distress call and, and went to the planet and when they were attacked by the Gorn. So it was confusing at first, but then when I understood what they were doing, it's like, okay, I get it. Right. And I can, I can imagine that my, uh, my synopsis was confusing. Oh, well. I followed along because I had read the book. Well, you read the book. <laughs> but I can see where my synopsis didn't really get that across as clearly as it should have. But Sorry. Okay. Anything else? Nope. All right. Well, then let's jump into issue number two. Excellent. All right. So issue two, again, two stories. The first issue is a original series episode, and it is entitled Action of the Tiger. Writers, Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton. Penciler is Mark Buckingham. Inker is Kev Sunderland. Colorist, Kevin Somers. Letterer, Phil Felix. Assistant editor, Polly Watson. Editor is Bobby Chase. And editor-in-chief, Bob Harris. So this came out January of 1997. And the cover is Next Generation. So it's just some random standard shots. Uh, the first one is of Picard, upper body and head. And then we kind of see Riker's head peering over Deanna's. And then there's a shot of the Enterprise D kind of superimposed over Picard's waist. And then behind all of that, we see a Federation, next generation Federation insignia. So the story action of the tiger starts with Kirk being summoned to Starbase six for a briefing on neutral zone policies. I guess there's been some changes. Kirk is only one of several high ranking captains that will be at the summit. When Kirk beams over, he brings along Chekhov and a random dark haired yeoman from the enterprise. Once arrived, Kirk is reunited with captain Ted Horner. Kirk's old friend, and the one who actually helped him out in cheating on the Kobayashi Maru all those years ago. 
The hosts of the summit are Commander Bynes, who is the commander of Starbase 6, and the newly promoted Admiral Stone, who Kirk knows very well due to being the one that uh, was trying to court-martial him back in the original series episode, The Court Martial. When they're being escorted to the briefing room, Chekhov thinks that he sees someone in the hallway. Looking again, and not seeing anyone, he walks away thinking that it must have just been a trick of the eye. In reality, it was a couple of Klingons hiding within a door jam. Later, the summit is in full swing when Commander Baines excuses himself, perhaps to visit the little commander's room. Shortly after his departure, Klingons storm into the room and hold everyone at Disruptor Point. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Uhura informs Spock that all communication from the station has suddenly gone silent, and Sulu states that the defense grid around the station has gone up. A communication soon comes in from the station. It is Klingon Commander Korga. He states that he's holding the station and all the captains hostage until the Federation returns some disputed colony worlds back to the Empire. Back on the station, the captains are being held in the room with four guards watching over them. Kirk whispers a plan to Horner and Stone. He and Horner will exit the room via an air duct, but Stone needs to create a diversion. The diversion turns out to be Stone walking straight up to the Klingons saying, Do you know who I am? I am the great and powerful Admiral Stone. Or something like that. Somehow, this works, and all four Klingons are completely enraptured enough that they do not see Kirk and Horner pull a grating off of a air duct, climb into the air duct, and then have the grating put back on. Stone is very disruptive. On the Enterprise, Spock confers with the other Federation ship's commanders. They all think that they should storm the station and retrieve their captains. Spock states that he would tr like to try one thing first. Back on the station, Kirk and Horner make their way through the station, knocking out several Klingons along the way and collecting their weapons. In a huge hangar, they see a Federation scout ship called the USS Baker being loaded with Andorian currency. They now know that this is an old-fashioned bank robbery. They also see Commander Baines working with the Klingons. A firefight quickly ensues with the Klingons, and Horner is vaporized. Kirk is caught and brought before Baines. Baines then states that he feels as if he's been passed up for promotion time and again while people like Kirk and Horner get all the good gigs. He is fed up with it, so he hired these renegade Klingons to help him out. He, nor his hired hands, care if this starts a war between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. Baines tells Korga to kill Kirk, and he returns to the baker. Before Korga can fire his rifle at the prone Kirk, he is vaporized himself. Stone and another captain had escaped and had come to the rescue. Suddenly, the USS Baker leaves the station. The Enterprise and all the other Federation ships are unable to stop it due to Baines using the old Wrath of Khan trick 
by disabling Federation ships due to knowing command codes. His getaway is cut short, however, when three Klingon vessels appear and blow the smaller craft apart. It is Commander Kor to the rescue. Spock it was able to contact Kor to inquire about Korga's actions, and Kor was not too pleased. Later, back on the station, the gathered captains share a drink to their lost comrade, Captain Ted Horner. The end. Oh, poor Ted. Yep, vaporized. Well, well quite frankly, it's kind of hard to believe that they would, uh, they'd be able to get out of this with nobody, you know, getting hurt. Right. So that yeah. made it a little bit more realistic. I find it hard to believe that Ted Horner was the only casualty because, I mean, even if your commander, Commander Baines, mm-hmm. is in, is informing the rest of the crew <clears throat> of the space station that to work with the Klingons, somebody's right. going to try to be a, a hero, hero yeah. and stop them and, and end up dying. So I really find it hard to believe Ted Horner, only casualty. Right. But he's the only one we saw, so that's the one that they drink to. Exactly. So I must say that uh, an interesting variety of people help Kirk with the Kobayashi Maru. Well, in this continuity, it's just Ted Horner, right? Well, according to this comic book, uh, was there something else that said that he that particular character helped Kirk, other than this book? No. Yeah, first thing I heard of it. Uh, personally, I like the Orion, the cute Orion that helped uh, Chris Pine out right. in, the, in the movie. I think she was a lot more uh, attractive person to help out. Thumbs up. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, well, but we don't know. He, he, this guy might look really good with just his underwear on, too. We don't know. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, how do you like the baker? I actually liked it. it it's different. Me, too. I did like it, especially when its whole look can morph from page to page. <laughs> it's it's not 100% consistent, but, I mean, at times it just doesn't have the detail, so you have something in specific? Well, uh, we don't have pages numbers, do we? No. no. Um, so when the baker actually leaves the station and right. then is confronted by the three uh, Klingon cruisers... right. On the one page where you see it from the front and it's leaving the station, um, the baker has one look to it. Mm-hmm. But then when you, when you see it from the back, its look is quite a bit different. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm just confused by it. But it does indeed say USS Baker in both pictures. So it's not like I'm getting confused with, uh, with another ship. Because there are a fair number of other ships in the story. Right, um, but the baker does look unique. So my problem is in the one page where you see that from the front and it's leaving the space station, it has standard-looking nacelles, right. um, and it looks like it has more or less standard pylons holding those uh, two nacelles to uh, the, the, the central structure. Now, when you look at it in the other page, um, the 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 nacelles look kind of flat kind of oval and flat and they're pointing up uh away from from the ship as opposed to pointing downward at an angle 
And the pylons that hold them are these big, big, huge things, which, quite frankly, I think is much more practical than having those little sticks, those little pylons that they normally have on uh, Taz ships, you know. Right. Uh, the original Taz ships, holding them to the, uh, the engineering section. So... Uh, so that's weird, and and do you see what I mean by yeah, are you on those I see pages? What you mean. Yeah. So all the pictures seem consistent, with the exception of that one where it shot has, from the back. Uh, no, the shot from the front where it has oh. Sulu and Spock kind of talking yes, in right, bubbles. Right, right, right. That's the oh only, yeah, you're right. That's the only shot where it looks like that. Um, right. Because because even when it's in in the dry dock, when it's in yep. actually in the station, it looks yep. more like. You know, the nacelles are kind of hanging on by, like, Enterprise D-looking nacelles. Right. Where it's kind of, like, cupping it a little bit. And, and both the engineering section and the nacelles are kind of flat and oval-looking. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is consistent with what, what it looks like when it blows up. So right. the only shot where it looks weird, and, and from I, the front. I 100% agree with you, is that one shot from the front. Yeah. Because it looks like, even the engineering section looks like a pretty standard, round tube kind of right. thing, yep. you know, with, with a deflect, uh, gold uh, deflector dish in front. Uh, yeah, quite a different uh, picture everywhere else. And then the backpack-looking thing, uh, which I don't – I mean, I've seen it on other things, but mm-hmm. I don't really understand what the uh, – Backpack's supposed to be? Yeah, what is that? I mean, I, I, I don't it's know. not a backpack, obviously. But. No, but that is where the impulse engines are located, which is interesting. Anyway, Whatever. Anyways, I, I liked the design when it was in inside the station when they were loading it up with the uh, the monies. Right. So, but then I did not like it when it first came out, and it was all smooth. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. So, um, I, in in my synopsis, I said that was Admiral Stone and another captain that uh, saved. Kirk from Korga, but mm-hmm. you think that's supposed to be maybe Chekhov? He looks young. Uh, I think he could be. But again, the is this the same uh, artist that did the previous episode? No. The previous it's issue? Different. It's different. Because again, you know, so, some, of the, uh, some of the people's faces are oddly uh, inconsistent in this one also. Right. And in some cases, they do look like the actors. In some cases, they don't. In this case, it kind of looks like Chekhov, but again, not a great Chekhov rendering. So it's kind of hard to tell. Right. Yeah, well, Chekhov throughout the, this book looked like he was maybe 14 years old. <laughs> right. <laughs> like when he thought he saw the Klingons and things like that, he just looked incredibly young. Yeah. And nothing like um, Walter Conan. Right. Yeah, this issue, everybody looked very cartoony. So, yes. like that, that professor would have fit into this, this book better. Uh, look better than he did last, yeah. last issue. Right. So, yeah, the, anyway. the, the, artwork, the artwork is not the greatest, at least of, of people. Well, it's, it's cartoony style. So, yeah. I mean, it has its merits and its uh, disadvantages, just like any other type of art style. But, well, yes, I understand what you're saying, but. I don't like it that much. Okay. So even though it, yes, it's like there is no such thing as bad music. <laughs> but I'm still not crazy about rap. Sorry. There I go. Understand. 
Or country music, really, but whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about this one. All right. Um, I have a couple things. Uh, I liked how Core was was brought in to save the day, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, he he came to destroy these uh, renegade Klingons who aren't acting in the Empire's best interest. interest. I liked that, and I did not like that Baines was able to use the old command codes, I can drop down all the shields and disable all the ships um, BS that, that they yeah. did in Wrath of Khan. Because <laughs> in Wrath of Khan, they all acted like, oh, this is a, such a novel idea. No no captain or anybody's ever thought of this before. Right. To disable the Reliant Shields. And yet here, Baines is able to take out six Federation starships and just scoot on right by them. Yeah. Using the same trick. Right. And this happens way before Wrath of Khan. Yep. And quite frankly... um, you know, it probably shouldn't be that novel an idea. And because it's not, it shouldn't be that novel of, of an idea, it's like, you should really do something about safeguards, about how easy it is to use that trick. Right. Because <laughs> that's like, you know, that's just, that is a backdoor to your, uh, <laughs> to your ships. Right. It only takes uh, one, one rogue captain like this, and he's, he can take out the whole fleet if he wanted to. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Hmm. All right. Well, you ready to go to the next one? I am. All right. So this one's entitled The Unkindest Cut. Writers Dan Abnett and Ian Edkinton. Penciler Ron Randall. Inker Al Williamson. Colorist Kevin Summers. Letterer Phil Felix. Editor Bobby Chase. And Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris. So this story starts off with Riker's captain's log, and it talks about how he recently requested and received a 48-hour shore leave for everybody on the ship, due to them all being so busy over the last few weeks. The Enterprise is in orbit above Ryza, and all but a small skeleton crew are down on the planet enjoying it. On the planet, Riker is a little annoyed with Geordi, Troy, and Beverly, because they only want to shop. They're on Ryza, and they're shopping. He doesn't understand. He leaves them so that he can go try to pick up some hot women nearby. His greatest pickup lines are about to pay off when he is suddenly interrupted by Mott and Barclay. They ask him about things like Klingon hairstyles and hair textures, and do you think it would be a good idea to open up a franchise of barbershops on Kronos? You know, important questions. Annoyed, Riker tells them to ask Worf when they get back to the ship and leave him alone. He turns back to the ladies, but they have all disappeared. On the Enterprise, Worf and Data are inspecting some cargo that they recently brought on board. Data detects a high-pitched tone just before the containers explode. Picard's lazy afternoon reading in his room is cut short with the news of the explosions. The mystery as to what happened is in full swing. Picard has ordered all transport to and from Ryza suspended until they find out who detonated the containers. Six crew members die 
in the last transport from the planet when a console explodes mid-transport. Unknown to everyone aboard the Enterprise, but there is a cloaked alien walking among them. On Ryza, Riker has gathered most of the crew and informed them of the situation. He tells them that there is at least one terrorist aboard the ship and that, so far, no one's been able to find him. Unbeknownst to him, another cloaked alien is standing just behind the commander. Later on the Enterprise, Data has found a way to discover the intruder. He has isolated the carbon dioxide on the ship, and he's isolated the one spot in the ship that there should not currently be any of the skeleton crew at. It is none other than Mott's Barbershop. Picard, Data, and Worf arrive at Mott's. At first, they do not see anything, but then they notice a refraction in the mirror. Data allows himself to get hit with a phaser blast so that the other two can get a bead and blast the invisible villain. It turns out that it is a Finjix Huntsman, a group of deadly assassins. When asked who their target is, the alien admits that it is Mott and that his brother will fulfill the mission. On Ryza, Riker and Mott are informed of the situation. It seems that Mott's great-uncle was once a pirate barber and is now somehow the target for this Finjex bounty. Geordi and Barclay use Geordi's visor to create a makeshift stun apparatus and they use Mott as bait. Soon, Mott is in a bedroom by himself when there is a flash. Suddenly, the alien appears after somehow springing the trap. Riker knocks out the alien. Later, the Finjax is being sent to Starbase 9, but there does not seem to be any ill will now that the Finjax knows that the contract against Mott was unjustified since his great-uncle was a captive aboard that pirate ship. The story ends with Mott asking Worf about the barbershop franchise on Kronos. The End Wah, 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 wah. So out of the four stories, this is my least favorite. Yeah. <laughs> this is really not a good one. Uh, you know, at first I thought we were going to have a, a Predator crossover. <laughs> bring, it on, bring it on, man. And it turns out to be some Fenjex assassin guy. Yeah. I was bitterly disappointed. Yeah. For being such... You know, because Worf really seems impressed with the Finjex warrior race or whatever, but hmm. they seem pretty, 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 pretty easy to beat. You ain't kidding, especially when they've got invisibility on their side. And I mean, he he coated all those cargo containers with the with the uh, explosive paint or whatever. Mm-hmm. Why did he not do that to something that Mott's actually going to be at to take out Mott directly instead of this whole, you know, keep him on the planet for no reason, keep the people on the Enterprise busy trying to find the other one? Right. Their plan made no sense. Yeah. I would think you'd want to stay concealed as long as possible until he gets back. And then just take him out nice and quiet. Right. Or, like the other one is down on the planet... You know, take him out. You know, I've played Assassin's Creed. I know how easy it is to just walk in a crowded room and take someone out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, at first hand. 
So I don't know. I just and, and then you know the, the fact that Riker's plan worked at all is mind-boggling because because <laughs> <laughs> it shows the alien standing me five or six feet away from Riker when he's talking to the group. Why is is he not there anymore when they start talking about this this trap with Jordy's visor? Yeah, it, it does not make sense. Nope. But at least the artwork's better. <laughs> at least the last issue or last story. Right. I really liked the uh, the artwork when when the explosion happens, when the first Finjax gets shot, and then when the second Finjax gets electrocuted. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, that's pretty good. Really dynamic yeah. kind of artwork. And then Riker's horizontal attack <laughs> <laughs> of the last uh, Finjax uh, assassin. Uh, dynamic is the word. Yes, action packed. Yes. I mean, he is horizontal, man. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah, and he's grabbing him with one hand. His left arm is his left hand is grabbing him by the collar, right. and his right hand is just slammed straight into his face. Yeah, and he's he's doing like like a wharf uh, punch, you know, right. with with the hand with the palm of his hand kind of thing, rather than the you know the fingers and stuff. Right. Which is I I understand the better way. You're less likely to hurt yourself. Pretty cool. Yeah, but the knuckles give a little bit more, less padding than your palm. Uh, if you're trying to inflict damage. Yeah. Right. Coming from a guy who's never been in a fight. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been in a fight since I was a kid. Mm. So. And kid fights are not that. Not not. Not that well executed. But I do like Fatoomph. Uh, who got Fatoomphed? So the explosion, when the first explosion happens, I think it's the first one. Right. Um, the, uh, it has a big T-H-T-O-O-M-M-F-F exclamation to give the sound of the explosion. A Fatoomph. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a Thutumph before. Uh, yeah, no, me either. So, bonus points for creativity. Did you notice the typo when uh, uh, the transporter chief, who's like in tatters, I guess the six people are dead somewhere. You don't see him. Right. Uh, he He contacts Picard, and he says, W-H-E-Y... Whatever word that is, so way they materialized. So I'm assuming it's supposed to be when, Uh but it's definitely a why. So way they materialized, the pad exploded. Yep. That's what he says. Well, maybe he's still shocked from the explosion. He doesn't know what he's saying. Maybe. But uh, yeah, I did not notice that. But that that does look like a typo. I'm misspelling it at at the very least. So this this book, more than any of the other books that we've read in quite a long time, has a fairly large body count. I mean, six yeah. people dead. Yep. And then at the end, it's all like, oh, it's a misunderstanding. Mott was just a, you know, his his uncle was on a was a captive on the pirate ship. Go on to Starbase Six and be on your way. It just, oh like, God. Oh my goodness, that was a yeah. pat ending, and you have six people dead. Yes. 
somebody needs to pay a price for that. Right. I'm sorry. That's that's transgressing a law. Right. It's and, not just a misunderstanding. Oh, I blew up a couple of containers. Right. Sorry. Our bad. No, six people are dead. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. No, we we want to leave everything a nice pad ending. No. And then the pirate yeah. thing. Oh my god. Oh, uh, oh, pirate barber. A pirate barber. What the and heck's a pirate barber? Somebody hated this pirate so bad that he put out a contract not to kill the pirate himself, but to kill the pirate's barber. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Plus, I've seen the uh, the Johnny Depp pirate movies, and they don't look like they get haircuts very often. Well, these are pirates in the future. Well, I don't know that they're necessarily going to be that better capped. <laughs> I, I'm not buying it. Oh, come on. Haven't you seen that episode where Riker and Picard both pretend to be pirates? Oh. Uh, they were all well-groomed. Yeah, what was that one? Yeah, you know, I mean, the whole... <sighs> Robin Curtis was in it. She played a, a Romulan for yep. Vulcan. Yep, and then the they finally find some ancient weapon or something. Yeah. Right. I, I thought the whole idea that the these pirates would would expect that Riker would turn coat so easily. It's like, you guys are idiots that you would believe that. Anyway, I thought... Anyway, whatever. Um... I thought the Wolverine full page ad looked pretty cool. Yeah, where he's he's wearing a like a like a ninja kind of type thing. Exactly, like a yeah, like a like a uh, a ninja bandana head part thing. Right, and he looks really nasty. Yes, that's that's when he had his bone claws and not his animanium because um, Magneto had taken all the animanium out. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yep. And then somehow he got it back in again? Somehow he gets it back in again. Jeez. Yeah, but he went a few years without uh, without the animanium. Hmm. But I, I always liked the claws because they looked kind of jaggedy and nasty. Right. As opposed to just those giant knives. Right. Well, um, at least... It, but the thing is... The fact that he had animanium in his body was the one reason that he was always the worst guy to go up against Magneto. <laughs> right. I mean, he was when Magneto was in the picture, Wolverine is useless. Absolutely useless. Um, so why did Magneto take out the animanium? Which would make him, like, <laughs> effective? Jerk. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, right, whatever. When, when that but, happened, that was a big deal. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh. Because at that time they didn't, we didn't know anything about bone claws. Right, we right. We thought that they were just metal. Right. And then come to find out, oh no, they were bone claws underneath the metal that could regenerate when get broken. Which they kind of played around with in the movies. Yeah. The last two. Huh. huh. Anyways, so uh, Riker's pickup lines would they have worked? I doubt it. They were horrible. I doubt it. But you know, he was drawn to big burly guy and. Uh, low-cut uh, shirt showing off the pecs and hair. Like, who knows? Maybe it wasn't what he was saying. But this is Riza, right? Yeah, Riza. So, you know, they're all supposed to be oriented around making uh, the tourists, you know, feel good about themselves. So who knows? 
I thought these were just tourists. I thought he was just hitting up on some other random people. You think these were employees? I think they were. I, th- I thought they were people of Riza. Oh. As opposed to tourists. But it, you but really why, don't know. Why'd they leave? I mean, was Mott that, that intimidating? I don't know. Hmm. So, so you're saying it's basic. Uh, it's basically the studliness of Riker in okay. action. That's what I thought they were. This could have happened anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Until yeah. Mott and uh, Broccoli scared him off. <laughs> Broccoli. All right, that's my last comment. Uh, that is my last comment too. If we are going to talk about um, ads, though, there was yeah. a pretty cool one for Doom at some point. I remember seeing. Oh. Uh... What was that last issue? Um, I don't remember seeing a Doom one, but there could have been. Oh, no, there it is. Okay. Well, yeah, it's it's Doom. Only... Final the, Doom. The, the, the fi- yeah, but it's in very small type in the bottom right of the graphic. Right. Our soldiers never die. They just turn into bloodthirsty mutant zombies. Now, I really liked the uh, Doom games. Yeah, me too. Uh... And then I kind of forgot that their advertising, you know, is actually pretty effective. I mean, that that's kind of the way they advertise, you know, the Resident Evils and stuff now. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not like it's changed all that much since then, right? So they were ahead of their time in more ways than one. There you go. Well, they were the they they were the first person shooter that really made first person shooters popular. Right. There was Castle Wolfenstein before Doom. Agreed. Uh, right. I don't think Castle Wolfenstein was ever as popular. Right. And this and this game also created the um, you know, the horror game, which hadn't really existed before then. You know, right. like like what Resident Evil and stuff is now. Uh-huh. You know, you could show you know monsters and gory and stuff without you know having to make it look like Mario Brothers. Right. Ah. So. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways, just threw that out there. Cool. All right, so next but next week we're coming back and we're going to do a the other Marvel series that was going on that we haven't yet covered, Starfleet Academy. So we'll do issues one through three of that. So what's Nog up to after he leaves Deep Space Nine? Yeah, I'm kind of um, looking forward to that just so I can see what what a Nog-centered series is like. Right. Yeah, out of all these that we haven't read yet, it's the one that's going to be completely original as far as I'm concerned because we have no frame of reference as to what's going on. All right. the characters will be new except for Nog. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm just kind of... Um, well, it's just going to be interesting. Right. And I and I hope I like it because I like Nog. It's just I never saw him as a upfront uh, character. I mean, but we did we did review some uh, a comic that did have him up front, so that's cool. But we'll see how he is at Starfleet Academy. Great. Right. I I I expect to be wowed. Oh, as you should be. <laughs> Good. It's going to be wowing for sure. Good. All right. Well, then uh, we'll we'll uh, settle up and be back next week. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review. 
Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.